Welcome to the Yogi MD Podcast. It's Nadine, yoga teacher, health coach, and retired doctor, here to bring you and your body together, not in sickness, but in health. Thanks for taking this time for yourself. got to prioritize happiness that's what it comes down to otherwise you can't expect that it will just happen because the world is not set up for it to just happen what does it mean to be happy should we strive for happiness what are three research proven keys to happiness Mari skelton australian author speaker and the co-host of the Happiness of Cynics podcast, is passionate about the subject of happiness and resilience. Tune in to hear Mari share her answers to these questions and more. I hope you enjoy the show. I've been looking forward to having you on, and I really want to talk to you a lot about the very fraught subject of happiness. Sure. <laughs> it's topical, very topical at the moment. And yes, I think, it is. I think it's because so many of us are doing it poorly, you know, um, we're, and, and it's not something that we're ever taught. So um, I definitely have stumbled over this later in life. Um, and it, it really still baffles me that I'm discovering this in my, you know, late 30s and 40s. First of all, you are a blogger and a podcaster, and your uh, podcast is Happiness for Cynics. I love that title. And I would love for you to explain to us why you named your podcast and your blog that way. Sure. Um, I, I think like all good things, we, I was having a drink or two with a friend when the idea came up. And and ultimately, it, it described me at the time. So I uh, recently went through a pretty major life event. I had a really bad accident. And until that point, I hadn't looked at happiness. I hadn't looked at positive psychology or how to live a better life. I had been following what society tells us is the script to follow for a successful life and I was in the rat race and by all accounts I was plugging along and doing well uh, and it wasn't until you know as a lot of people discover after major trauma um, it wasn't until that happened that I looked at my life and went is, is this it <laughs> mm-hmm. is this all there is and uh, since then I've done so much research into positive psychology in particular and neuroscience and it really was a personal journey to get over my own cynicism for things like meditation and yoga. <laughs> <laughs> so really happiness cynics is, is happiness for Mari <laughs> uh, and it's, it's, it's my journey of discovering all of these fabulous things that uh, are not only science-backed but they work. <laughs> Okay, so you've touched upon a couple of things already with with your story. I'm an American, and one of the founding ideas of being an American is the pursuit of happiness. It's aggressive to have to pursue happiness. Mm -hmm. What is it like culturally for you? How is happiness thought of? 
I, I'm in Australia. I uh, went to George Mason University, though, in uh, northern Virginia, and my husband is from Texas, so <laughs> America is close to my heart, and I have a lot of <laughs> friends over there, and it's like a second home in a way. And Australia is, is very similar to America uh, when it comes to a lot of our culture and ideals and ways of working. So uh, we're not that dissimilar, but back to the pursuit of happiness, the the horrible part about putting it into such an important document is that it makes it something that everyone should strive for or achieve, but they haven't told you how. So it's this thing, this shining light that everyone, uh, well, if they if they do, but people aspire to, and they haven't explained how, and it's only in the last 20 to 30 years that the field of positive psychology has even existed. So for a long time, we've been making it up as we go along, and some people are getting it right, and, and a lot of us aren't. But the other thing is there's this thing called the happiness paradox. And essentially, it means that the more you want it and try for it as a goal, happiness, the less likely you are to achieve it. And all of the research is showing that it's more about the journey than the end goal. And so having the pursuit of happiness, um, I, I like the word pursuit because it is about the process of getting there, but happiness is, is not a goal, it's a byproduct. And so I think that is where a lot of us go wrong. What is happiness? It is so subjective and even the researchers don't agree. Mm. <laughs> so for me, um, happiness is a, a sense of fulfilment in life. It is a longer term uh, way of being rather than a momentary uh, period of joy or, or um, excitement or anything like that. And, and I would say I'm happy despite COVID, despite everything else that goes on in our world, I would say I'm happy. And I, for the first time in my life, am saying that with confidence that I am happy. So for me, that's what it means. For other people, it can mean a lot of different things. The researchers do tend to agree, though, that it means uh, having a good amount of positive affect, they call it. So good things that happen in your life, things like getting promotions, birthdays, you know, great dinners out with friends, all of those fabulous, nice, good, happy moments means not having too many negative affect moments, negative moments. So it's really hard to be happy if the world's falling apart around you and we do need to cope with those moments and, and move through them and process them. And then the last piece is really within your grasp and within your control. And this is where we really have an opportunity to put in place habits and rituals that are proven to bring that fulfilment that I was talking about, that overall level of happiness. So how much of it is outside in versus inside out as far as what you can control all of it is inside out mm -hmm. and there's a great book uh, and great research by sean acker into the idea that successful people are happy and it's the other way around happy people are successful yeah so 
we need to flip our thinking. Yeah. That's what was intriguing me about what you were saying earlier, because if we rely on only external factors or rewards to dictate our happiness, that's when we tend to get into trouble. I found Mm -hmm. that to be true. And from what you started to say, you certainly did. Can I hear a little bit more about your experience? Sure. Um, So I grew up in a household where education was important and it was the main thing. I had a strict father who uh, instilled in me the value of hard work and getting good grades so that I could get a good college education and get a good job and and there was always this implicit idea that that would lead to some kind of happiness or satisfaction or there would be a a good positive emotional reward at the end of that somewhere. (laughs) Instead what it did is it taught me not to enjoy the journey, it taught me not to enjoy learning for learning's sake and curiosity for curiosity's sake Uh, and, and our school system actually really is set up to beat the curiosity out of kids. It really flips the idea of learning to something we all hate and we have to get through. Once you get through that first big math exam and and you do well, you might feel a sense of enjoyment at that moment. But then there's more and you've got to do the next one and the next one. And so you finish your year one, two, three, and you go up and you, you do get into the college of your dreams. And again, a, a big moment where you're like, yes, you know, I've made it. And that lasts for a second. But then you're like, now what? Right? So you're always striving for more and what's next and what's next rather than enjoying the process along the way. And it's a really empty way to live. And, it, and then we, we leave school and there are less of those little moments along the way that you can celebrate. And all of a sudden, a lot of people around the midlife crisis time go, what have I been doing? I've, I've, I've done exactly what society asked of me. I've been in the rat race. I've got the white picket fence. I've got the kids, 2.3 <laughs> kids <laughs> and the, the, the family. And I'm not satisfied. I'm not mm-hmm. fulfilled with mm-hmm. life. Mm-hmm. Because it's always been about attaining the big car, the nice house, etc. And particularly now with social media and watching everyone else get the nice car and the big house and the good clothes, it's reinforcing this idea, but it's a really empty way to live. And a lot of studies have shown that after you've got your basic needs met, uh, the amount of money that you earn really has little impact on your happiness And we need to start getting out of this mindset that just getting to the next thing will make us happy because it never does. So what I hear you describing is the hedonic treadmill, which is those rewards. And but what winds up happening is that you get to that thing and then our brains are wired to get used to it, just kind of put it in the background. So then you thought you really wanted to attain this specific goal, and it seemed big. And when you would get there, you'd have all this emotional reward. And then it's like, uh, meh, okay, on to the next thing. And it has to be bigger. And so you're in mm-hmm. this treadmill, this per- constant pursuit. So how do we avoid that hard wiring? Sure. 
firstly, you've got to buy in. As a former cynic, (laughs) you have to buy into some things that might make you feel a little bit uncomfortable. And, And if that is the way that you're approaching a lot of this, there is so much science and research out there now. Uh, it is a young field, but there is consensus and there is real research that you can very easily look up and find on on all of these things. Uh, my personal experience and my research for the book that I'm doing groups three tif- different types of activities, foundations, and they align up with a lot of other great thinkers in this space and, and how they view the the keys to happiness, really. So the first one is relationships. I I like to use the test. Do you have three people you could call if you're in jail at two o'clock in the morning? (laughs) (laughs) To bail you out. (laughs) Do you have three people that you could fess up to (laughs) and go, oh, I've done something stupid. (laughs) Will you come and get me and can you bail me out? (laughs) Um, So three people you feel you can depend on and really rely on and who know you for you. So that is the first thing. And then you can have a whole lot of other people and and really the the more resilient, happy people tend to have a good wider circle of people uh, that they can go out to dinner with or socialise with and things like that, generally because they tend to have a lot more activities that they do like volunteering or church or playing sports etc outside of that core group of friends Uh, but that's not essential so you need a really good strong core and then the second foundation is purpose and meaning Mm -hmm. and a lot of us fall into the trap of thinking that our job has to be the thing that gives us purpose or meaning and most for most of us we don't actually find that it, it would be lovely if we did, <laughs> but a lot of us don't. A lot of us are in jobs that we could leave or take, really, when push comes to shove. Mm-hmm. And so the challenge there is find something. For me, it's writing. I love writing. So I do a lot of that. Uh, and I'm a curious person, so I do a lot of reading as well. For someone else, it might be coaching Little League or you know, there are any number of things, painting, uh, hiking, all kinds of things that can give you purpose mm-hmm. and something podcasting, to get you out of bed in the morning. Murray, podcasting, podcasting. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and having these conversations that really inspire you and make you think about other things. Anyway, that's for me. I'm not trying to lay my own <laughs> values over this one. <laughs> But uh, something that gets you out of bed in the morning and a really interesting stat to me when I tripped over it was that 40% of people who retire are depressed within a year. I believe that. I believe that. a lot Mm -hmm. of the time, a lot of the time it's because we were so looking forward to doing nothing Mm -hmm. (laughs) and we get there and nothing isn't all it's cracked up to be. Doing nothing is quite terrible actually. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. <laughs> because well, to your for point, a day or two. right? Yes. <laughs> yeah. But to your point, we are we do need purpose. Mm-hmm. We do, and yeah. so yeah. if your identity was wrapped up in this one thing, and you lose yeah. it, 
then of course you're going to have an existential crisis and wonder, I've been doing this thing for 40 years. Now what do I do with myself? Mm-hmm. It's not Absolutely. a terribly good permanent <laughs> way to exist. <laughs> Absolutely. And and actually, that's a great point because a lot of us only have our jobs mm-hmm. as our purpose. And in today's day and age, we can't rely on our jobs being there forever anymore. I think the latest uh, research is showing we change careers about seven times and and with automation and technology, Mm -hmm. a lot of people are saying that a lot of jobs won't exist in the future. So we need to be ready to be flexible and, and change careers. But if you are not ready, mentally ready for that and your job is your identity and you lose that job, it can be really tough to bounce back from that. So, again, another reason why having a passion or a hobby outside of your nine to five or, you know, whatever your your work situation is to balance that out is is a really good idea. Um, And then the third one is a huge bucket for me, but I call it, uh, you know, health and well-being. And this is the, the mind and body. And we live in a society where people feel guilty for taking time to look after their mind and body. And it is so important. And and the research and interviews I've been doing show that this bucket is so varied. We're all individuals, but the people who are the most resilient and the happiest prioritise their self-care. They prioritise healthy mind and body. So for some people that's drinking water, getting enough sleep, exercising, eating well. Uh, There's a whole lot of things in there that we know we should do. Mum said, you know, (laughs) you should do this and you know deep down you should do it. But the ones who are succeeding in prioritising those things and self-compassion is in there too so forgiving yourself when you don't exercise three times a week and when you have that burger and fries instead of the salad Um, but the the people who are doing really well have purpose and passion some strong social connections and they prioritize their self-care So one of the things that I've been wondering about is how happiness has changed intergenerationally, how the definition is evolving. You mentioned your dad. And Mm -hmm. look, my parents used love and and there was family was valued and education was highly valued too. So I completely Mm -hmm. understand. I can relate to where you're coming from. But nobody ever use the word happy. Are you happy? It just wasn't of the time, I think. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Uh, The irony is that the more time that we have back and the more comfortable we are, the less happy we have become, humans Mm. have become. Mm. There was a great study that looked at income levels and if if you're poor and in extreme poverty you everyone would argue that it is it is really difficult to consider this thing called happiness uh, when you're just trying to feed your family and feed yourself so we won't talk about the lowest levels of extreme poverty 
But the poor, I often look at the rich and think, oh, gosh, I'd be so happy if I won the lottery or if I had what they had. And there's a great study that looked at Japan and how its economic prosperity through the 80s and 90s increased. And at the same time, the amount of suicides went up Mm. at exactly the same rate. And they looked into why that was. And when we have more time but don't know what to do with it, and when we have all our basic needs met, we start looking around at what is it that we're meant to do and yeah. what, what is happiness and, and, and talking about these great ideas. And, and if, if anyone's familiar with uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, mm-hmm. when you're at the bottom level just trying to feed your family or get shelter or secure your security, you don't have time to think about these higher level things like happiness. And our parents, their their life was getting pretty good by this stage in the 20th century, Mm -hmm. but they were still working to put their kids through university. Exactly. And so that's why now where we have everything automated, we're not scrubbing clothes down by the stream for five mm-hmm. hours every day mm-hmm. and we're not out hunting and gathering. And, and that progress has meant that we have an ability now to strive for happiness, to strive for self-actualization. Uh, we just are trying to work out how a lot of the time now. And the sad thing is we're suffering more stress, more depression, more anxiety now that we're trying to tackle those questions because we don't always have the answers or we haven't been taught what the answers were. So there is a a hugely worrying trend that is going the wrong direction globally with increased rates of anxiety and depression. So we we definitely have a lot of work to do in this space to, to balance that out and to teach people how to be happy. Okay, so Joy on Demand is by, I don't know if I'm pronouncing his name correctly, Chade Ming Tan. And it's, mm-hmm. he talks about the art of discovering the happiness within. So it's really this focus on being able to cultivate internal joy, internal happiness through meditation. He talks a lot about meditation because he talked about how in the first 21 years of his life, he was miserable and he just thought that's how he had to be. He didn't have a choice. And then he discovered that he could cultivate joy after he discovered meditation. And that the title of the book, Joy on Demand, is because by becoming a seasoned meditator, then you can call joy up on demand through meditation techniques. So I just wonder, besides the practice of meditation or mindfulness techniques, what else we can be doing and what we could be learning, because you've done a lot of research around this, in order to Mm -hmm. cultivate happiness from within, despite what's happening on the outside, because we don't have control over that. Absolutely. And I think that's that's a really good first point. It's about doing what you can within your sphere of control and learning to let go of what you can't control. There's a lot of self-reflection uh, that needs to happen 
to enable you to break down all of those societal expectations that haven't caught up to where we are now. Um, so that rat race idea, you, you need to get over that. So to do that, you've got to do a bit of self-reflection and understand yourself mm. and any limiting beliefs you might be carrying with you or weird ideas that we picked up. I grew up in the 80s. We still had cassette tapes. And, <laughs> you know, life was different then. And there's a whole lot that I carry with me, all my baggage, that if you don't poke it and prod it and, and see whether it still holds true, they just sit there in the back of your head running the script. So the first thing to do is to really just take stock of your life and look, I, I like those three foundations because they're this simple and you can apply that lens over your life. So look at your diary, add in what you're doing in your week around your things that you've got in your diary. So are you watching a lot of TV or scrolling through social media? Did you go for a walk in, you know, on that morning? Add in what you've done for the week and take a look at your balance mm. across those three foundations. Mm -hmm. So take out that big chunk of work if it, if it isn't your passion. If it is, I'm so happy for you. <laughs> Keep doing what you're doing <laughs> for that. But balance it with the other two. You can't only work on your passion to the you know, and neglect the other areas. Um, so have a look at whether you are filling your cup from a passion and purpose perspective every week, also from a social connection perspective. And mindfully doing that, really engaging. So having a family dinner where everyone scrolls on their social media and doesn't connect doesn't count. You, you know it doesn't, so be honest with yourself. <laughs> and then the last one is, are you really prioritising things as simple as sleep? So there's a great study that shows if you get less sleep, we all know we can get a bit grumpy, but we also don't experience good things as deeply. So you might get a promotion the next day after a bad night's sleep and you'll be like, meh, <laughs> mm -hmm. right? So maybe that's a bit extreme, but you, you won't feel the pleasure of a good event as much. So it becomes um, tough. I, I don't have the answer for people if you've got newborns. I'm sorry. <laughs> but for the rest of us, you know, trying it, something as simple as trying to get just 30 minutes more sleep can make a really big impact on your happiness levels. And prioritizing that. And again, I said before, we don't give ourselves permission a lot of the time to prioritize our self-care. So in that reflection period, when you're looking at what am I doing and what should or could I be doing, give yourself permission to prioritize going to the gym and leaving the kids with dad or whatever it is that you feel you need to do. And then you know, see what works, see what sticks. One of the most beneficial things that I've put into practice is practicing gratitude. But I do it when I jump into bed with my husband at night and we both talk to each other and say, what are three things that went well for you today? Hmm. And he shares with me and we have conversations and we're actually bonding more over these questions, I feel closer to him. So the relationship is stronger now, but we've been together 15 years. 
apart from saying, you know, who's making dinner and what are we buying at the grocery store, mm-hmm. you know, you just do a bit of a funk. Oh, yeah. This has really uh, opened up a, a different way of communicating. And not only that, the, the science underneath gratitude is that you're training your brain to look for the positive and we are wired to look for the negative to run from the tiger yes. <laughs> who might be trying to, you know, eat us. So it, it's about rebalancing what our minds naturally do to scan for the positive. So that I had to have one tip. That would be something I'd recommend. Do it around the dinner table, have a conversation. A lot of the research shows that writing it down or journaling is really beneficial. So if you want to go that next step, um, having said that, just sharing what we're grateful for at the dinner table, just like we used to do, uh, you know, if, if you're religious at all, you know, what are we giving thanks for? Um, it's really powerful. It's interesting you brought up gratitude because I find social media to be draining and I have to be very careful about my use of it. And mm-hmm. I just notice how I feel. I just feel terrible if I spend too long engaging with my mm-hmm. social media. But one of the things I did over the summer and recently because of all the negative external stuff that's been swirling around, I decided, you know what, why don't I just keep it simple and take some really nice pictures of nature and post them. And just because I'm grateful for that, grateful for my walks, grateful for the lake, you know, and that did help, I noticed, Mm -hmm. instead of feeling drained. And I was really careful about not spending too much time on it. So to that community, that social circle you mentioned, I didn't get a lot of likes necessarily on anything, but that's that's another subject because, okay, <laughs> part of the drain. Mm-hmm. But the likes I did get were very meaningful and people were making comments and people were saying they were happy just to be able to open up their feed and see this picture of the beach or the lake or the woods that I would post because nature pictures are calming, but doubly it was just a way for me to practice gratitude for quite frankly, being able to walk out there and go take those pictures. Absolutely. And taking a picture makes you, it's a mindfulness activity that you just took yourself through. So you went to a place that I would hazard to say you've probably been to before, but you stopped and appreciated that place in a way that normally you might have walked through or driven past. You stopped and appreciated it and were grateful. So taking photos is an excellent way to practice gratitude and mindfulness for what you have. Uh, And the fact that you happen to then post on social media, I wouldn't say you were actually... Uh, mindlessly using social media. I think that mm. that was just a, a nice way of sharing your, your gratitude at mm-hmm. the end. Mm-hmm. But, but, but back to the social media, the thing is we finish work, we finish an activity and we come home and we feel exhausted and we put on TV or we scroll through social media and it is the exact opposite of what our brain needs. Our brains are really good at finding a second wave of energy if you engage them 
what we're doing when we passively put social media and TV and other things on is bombarding our brain with images, sound, Mm -hmm. things it needs to process. Mm -hmm. So we think we're relaxing, but our brain is like, oh, we're on again. And it actually makes you more tired. (laughs) But you don't get any of the positive joys out of that that you would out of having a chat with your best friend on the like calling them and having a chat on the phone or going for a walk or putting your big girl pants on and getting to the gym instead when you feel bad <laughs> you know when you're feeling tired those three things would give you so much more enjoyment and happiness out of life than sitting at, on the couch or scrolling through social media so it's it's a, it's a trick And that's where social media, I think, is bad, when we're mindlessly Mm -hmm. doing it rather Mm -hmm. than proactively choosing to share something with our friends or or use it to post things that we're grateful for. There's so many things out there that are traps for us, happiness traps. (laughs) Yes, they are. And so confusing to decide what it means to be happy. Absolutely. And it is a personal and subjective journey. I think uh, Tal Ben-Shahar at Harvard, he says everyone is constantly on this journey and, and you might be you know, just rating it. You might be an eight or a seven today on your happiness scale, but you're always striving for the next, you know, um, it's, it's a journey for life. But there is so much research out there And it is about just prioritizing it. I think Stephen Covey said, you know, you don't prioritize. You don't do what you don't prioritize. Mm -hmm. I just butchered that quote. But I can see you nodding. (laughs) I love Stephen Covey's CS work. So, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, (laughs) you've got to prioritize happiness. That's what it comes down to. Otherwise, you can't expect that it will just happen because the world is not set up for it to just happen. But you know, what's interesting to me, too, is that it's not healthy to expect that it can be sustainable either. There's mm-hmm. to be room for other emotions. Absolutely. So it's okay to settle into the discomfort. And that's where the meditation and the mindfulness helps to settling into the discomfort and not being afraid of it to experience grief, to experience mm-hmm. sorrow to experience anger, what have you. It doesn't always have to be about always trying to be positive and always being happy and smiling and optimistic. That's the other thing. We get these cultural cues where it's not necessarily okay to have these other emotions, that we should put a smile on our faces and Mm -hmm. keep trying harder. Absolutely, and that's so damaging. And this is where the intersection of resilience and happiness is, right? So if we get our foundations right, if we're doing what we need to do to bring happiness and and moments of joy into our life and something bad happens, the definition of resilience is, or the, the point of resilience is bouncing back. It's not about not feeling. It is about feeling the pain. It's about going out into the wild and yelling at the top of your lungs or beating your pillow or crying until you can't cry anymore and and processing those emotions Mm. 
or talking, you know, depending on how, what level of uh, the, the <laughs> scale you're on there, talking to a friend, trying to work through it, letting the emotion out and then bouncing back and moving on. And if you have those three foundations in place, you will work through those and come out the other side a lot faster and not get stuck. So everyone's scared of being stuck in that negative mind space uh, to the point where, as you said, they have platitudes and T-shirt slogans, you know, Mm -hmm. suck it up, you know, all those kinds of things, no pain, no gain. And unfortunately, you do need to experience that. And I think a lot of older men who were always taught, that older generation who Mm. were taught never to show emotion, Mm. we we do see in a lot of their behaviour that they don't show emotion, they don't show emotion, and and boy, do they show emotion a lot of time. It's anger and it's misdirected and they don't know what to do with it. Yes. (laughs) That's not healthy either. So you absolutely have to experience pain when it's appropriate and have in place those foundations in the good times and the habits in the good times that will carry you through the bad times. Oh, so I that love you move that. Through it better. So it's almost like you're saying these are tools. So the more you mm-hmm. practice using these tools, then you can use these and recall them when you need them, when it's not so easy because it's easy for everybody to sail through when, when the sun is out and everything is great, but it's when you're being particularly challenged that mm-hmm. it's necessary to pull from those tools you've been practicing of how you practice resilience, how you practice gratitude, how you practice joy, who's in your social circle, making sure you do take yeah. those self-care steps, even if you don't feel like it you still have them in place to to bolster you and what is that thing that is giving you purpose and that thing that's giving you purpose changes and can change absolutely absolutely what we like when we're 12 is not the same as when we're 25 or when we're 50 <laughs> I, I don't play with barbies anymore <laughs> but the the trick here is that when the world goes belly up and something bad happens You've got to protect those habits as much as you can, mm-hmm. if you can, because they can be moments of reprieve from a sad time. So if going for a walk in nature and taking photos brought you joy and something bad happens to you or your family, being able to get away for an hour and go for a walk and reset your mind might not make you happy at that point, but it might bring you a bit of peace and calm mm-hmm. before you, you know, go back home and, and continue grieving or whatever it is that you're processing and uh, keep your mental health stronger. Mm-hmm. Hmm. I'm <laughs> absorbing that. That's I, I can see. <laughs> yeah. It's subtle, but so profound. It's almost like doing those reps in the gym Why you mm-hmm. lift the weights so that maybe when you do get sick, you're healthier so that you can endure your illness, your chronic illness. Or if you're healthier going into it, if you've put in that work, if you've trained, then you're going to have an easier recovery. Absolutely. 
So this is actually the topic of my next book and I'm looking at change and how change is uh, it's the new new pink or black or whatever it is, right? new orange. It, it is such a constant, ever-present thing in our lives right now. So I call it a, a change storm, whether it's the little things like, oh, great, Microsoft has changed the button from red to purple or whether it's like you know, little things that you might not even think about to the big things that really impact our lives. They're happening so much more often and all the time now. And if we want to be resilient to all of that good and bad change, we need to have these foundations in place mm-hmm. and really be giving ourselves permission to prioritise that so that we can deal with the good and the bad that comes our way because there's so much more of it in our world nowadays and so much pulling us away from our natural uh, propensity towards happiness. Has the research shown a parallel or relationship between happiness and longevity? Absolutely. <laughs> they're, uh, they're happier people have uh, better physical health outcomes, so they're less stressed. They have lower levels of cardiovascular diseases. They so they live longer physically, mentally. They are more successful. We mentioned uh, before, but they have stronger mental health. There's a great study, the study that everyone points to, done. Uh, from Harvard, and it's the longest study that's ever been done. So decades and decades and decades of research. And they looked at people over their lives. I think a lot of them came in in their 20s or late teens, and now they're getting to the end of their lives, and they've looked at their happiness levels. So those people, um, that study showed in particular that relationships were the single biggest uh, influence on our happiness levels but definitely you can also see that happier people live longer and there's some great uh, research into Mediterranean areas and Japan they looked oh, at. Oh you're talking about blue zones. Blue zones mm-hmm. yes <laughs> um, but again those three things are present the relationships yeah. the strong social connections mm-hmm. uh, secondly purpose mm-hmm. a reason hope you know, planning. And what can give you hope is something as simple as planning a holiday. And it could be camping, if that's your thing. <laughs> it doesn't have to be expensive, right? But it's something to look forward to. And then, again, you know, going for walks, getting out, you know, eating well, all of those things we know we should do <laughs> as well. Um, acts of kindness, wonderful ways to bring back mm-hmm. positive juju to you. <laughs> So there's a lot in there that you can do, but again, you've got to prioritize it. Do you have a question for me? I'd love to ask you, firstly, to rate your happiness on one to ten. In this moment, because I'm a yoga teacher, I would Mm -hmm. say that my happiness on about a scale of ten is an eight. And so what do you think you could do to... Make it a nine next week. I love this question. 
I've been doing a lot of work with my meditation to be able to be more accepting of the present moment and to be able to cultivate a sense of equanimity then, despite Mm -hmm. what's going on on the outside. Now, I have a confession to make. I've been a yoga teacher for several years and meditation was just out of my grasp. Everything I tried, I just couldn't seem to get it under control and be consistent. And I was feeling so much shame and guilt about it. And so then I decided, okay, why don't I show myself some Mm self-compassion? Since I'm having trouble, let's take some baby steps. Why don't we decide, and this was me talking to myself, (laughs) why don't you decide to make it as easy as you can right now? So let's start with consistency. Mm-hmm. And I drew upon my strength because I am a, a type A personality who goes for it. So I thought, okay, so let me use that strength and just make the practice consistent. So that means well, let's not worry about the quality. Is it a minute? Is it two? I committed to my app and I sat with the app. It's been over 240 days now. I have not missed a day. But again, it's because I'm I've decided that I wanted to be consistent, whether it's a minute or whether it's 10, whether it's 15. On those days where it's 10 or 15, I'm like, wow, go you. And then on the days where it's one, it's like, well, I did it. And so don't judge. Okay. Mm -hmm. So -hmm. now it's time for me to take it to the next level, getting deeper into what meditation can do for me. So that being said, I think that that will help me because I have the tendency to be anxious. I have the tendency to worry about things. And if I mm-hmm. commit to deepening the quality of my meditation, I believe that those things don't define me. Anxious moments, worry moments don't define me. They're telling me something, but can I accept them and let them go? Yeah. So I believe that's what's going to bring me up to a nine or ten. So what what I'm hearing... <laughs> is that next week you're going to start this next phase <laughs> it's funny of you your say meditation that. journey. It's funny you say that because I actually started it today because I went to the post office and I cannot seem to get their hours right around. I live in a small town and every mm-hmm. time I go, they're closed for that hour or I've just missed them. And I'm like, Argh. so I went today because I was running between errands and I thought, okay, I'm just going to get in and get out. And I went to open the door and it said that they were on lunch. So I go, okay, (laughs) again. So I only had 10 minutes to wait. I was super irritated. And I said, I'm going to get in a car and I'm just going to turn around and go home and do something. And then I said, really? Can't you just sit in the car and wait for the 10 minutes? Set a timer, be quiet and meditate for that amount of time. I didn't get all the way through. But at least I had the wherewithal, and it was about six minutes in silence. And that's not easy for me yet. Mm -hmm. It it is so funny that you bring up this story because I had almost the exact same experience (laughs) less than a week ago. I think it was Monday. (laughs) 
and I failed miserably. You did so much better than I did. Corrected. I was so wrong. <laughs> I remember calling my husband and going, it's just like the DMV in America. <laughs> this is so such a broken system. <laughs> and I was railing and he was like, did you get the packages posted? Because that's all he cared about. <laughs> but I had to vent. I was late for my meeting after lunch. <laughs> Yes, anyway. So I think you you dealt with that setback a little bit better than I did. (laughs) I'm trying. I'm trying. (laughs) Which I think is all we can ask of ourselves. And again, the fact that we're still talking about that forgiving ourselves for having these moments of uh, human feeling, human emotions, where we're really um, not very good at self-compassion yet uh, on the whole, I think. We generically, not you and me. <laughs> I think you have to want it. Yeah. There's that willingness yeah. that you have to be yeah. willing. Mm-hmm. And I, and I, going all the way back to that happiness for cynics, there are a lot of cynics out there and a lot of people who just don't know what they're missing out on. And I, you know, I, I used to think that um, there was this group of hippies that had opted out of society and believed in all this yogi (laughs) meditation stuff (laughs) and I was so wrong I'm so shamed (laughs) but your curiosity got the best of you and you decided to do something about it and to challenge those beliefs not everybody does that absolutely they're the ones I'm trying to talk to (laughs) but everyone just thinks I'm drinking the Kool-Aid I think What is your personal definition of what it means to be healthy? For me, I am healthy if I'm happy. And to expand on that, if I am looking after my mental health and my physical health through those three foundations and if I have balance across them, so if I'm having good connection with friends and family, if I am exploring my purpose and passion and meaning uh, on a regular basis, and if I am getting exercise and sleep and eating well, uh, then I end up happy. happy. Happiness is a byproduct, so that is definitely my measure of health. Uh, and self-compassion is in there as well. I think that it's the, the pull away from mental health. <laughs> <laughs> so, so for me, my definition of health is those three things and they go into physical and mental uh, health and, and definitely they're both interlinked and intertwined and so important to each other. So health can't be purely physical or mental. Thank you so much for being here today. I loved Not our conversation. Thank you for having, yeah, thank you for having me. Me too. <laughs> I want to give you a call. This is going to go in my social connection bucket for the week. I had a great conversation. <laughs> <laughs> that brings me happiness and joy. And now it's time for the Mindful Minute. Let's meditate. One of the ways to meditate is by anchoring. Anchoring is a way to settle the mind on a sensation. 
It can be your breath, a sound, a sight, or touch. And don't worry, when your mind wanders, which it will, gently bring it back to your point of focus. Today, let's choose an object on which to focus your gaze using sight. How about a candle? Find a comfortable place and seat where you will not be disturbed. Light your favorite candle. Place it at a comfortable distance from your gaze. Keep your eyes soft. Observe your thoughts, feelings, and sensations that arise without judgment. Be willing to let them go. Notice. You will hear a bell bringing you back to the present moment after a minute, all the time you need. Now release your focus and bring your awareness back into the present moment. Notice how you feel. If you liked this episode, please share it with a friend. And are you interested in starting or maintaining a yoga practice at home? I teach yoga to wise women. I believe in empowering and educating wise women to thrive on their terms at every stage of life. Let's hear what a wise woman has to say. We focus on balance. I don't think I'm going to trip and fall, but should I trip and fall? Guess what? I know exactly how to get up. They're not, they're just not a lot of instructors out there like you at all. To learn more, connect with me at yogimd.net. And finally, podcast theme music is by my niece, Maya Bishop, on vocals. My daughter, Lizzie Kelly, on guitar and bass. Yours truly on percussion. And produced by Tim Buer. Thanks for being here. See you next time.